All right. This paper explores the relationship between knowledge and love found in the theology of Thomas Gallus, the early 13th century canon regular associated with this 12th century school of St. Victor and often styled as the last of the great medieval Victorines after Hugh and Richard. To the extent that Gallus is known at all today, he's often regarded as the instigator of a particular medieval approach to the question of knowledge and love, an approach which places the these two in a mutually exclusive competitive relationship in which love ultimately wins out over and against knowledge. He is thus labeled an affective, that is to say an anti-intellectual mystical theologian whose theology bore its most famous fruit in the late medieval treatise, The Cloud of Unknowing. To the extent that the cloud treatise is identified as the root of a late medieval anti-intellectualism that flowers in modern spirituality, Gallus is thus often credited with sowing the seeds of a modern anti-intellectualism. This paper seeks to exonerate Gallus. <clears throat> it argues that he distinguishes knowledge and love, but only in order to place them in a dynamic reciprocal interrelationship. Inspired by the thought of Bernard Lonergan, this paper argues that this relationship <clears throat> is best understood as levels of human consciousness, levels that are distinct and irreducible to each other, which together comprise what could be called, borrowing a phrase, the polymorphism of human consciousness. In a late article called Mystical Consciousness, a Modest Proposal, Bernard McGinn distinguishes mysticism and spirituality in this way. Spirituality is a broader term signifying the whole range of beliefs and practices by which the Christian church strives to live out its commitment to the spirit present in the risen Christ. More narrowly, mysticism signifies an integral element within spirituality. It is the inner and hidden realization of spirituality through a transforming consciousness of God's immediate presence. This mystical element within Christian spirituality is the goal to which spiritual practices aim. And this transforming consciousness of God's immediate presence is often called mystical experience. McGinn, however, deems mystical experience a misleading interpretive category due to the ambiguity of the word experience. Instead, he proposes that analyses of medieval, medieval uh, mystical texts have recourse to Lonergan's category of consciousness, for it provides a more adequate theoretic basis for investigating mysticism, and also one that provides a better insight into the writings of the mystics themselves. McGinn writes, and this is the first text on the handout, mystical consciousness is a fruitful way to conceive of the forms of special encounter with God spoken of by Christian mystics, primarily because consciousness, as Lonergan understands it, emphasizes the entire process of human intentionality and self-presence, rather than just an originating pure feeling, sensation, or experience easily separable from subsequent acts of thinking, loving, and deciding. So heeding again, a brief glance at Lonergan's theory of consciousness will be helpful. Lonergan conceives of human consciousness as a dynamic structure. In general, for him, a structure is a whole composed of parts in which each part is functionally related to the others. Each part is what it is in virtue of its functional relations to other parts. There is no part that is not determined by the exigencies of the other parts. The whole possesses a certain inevitability in its unity 
so that the removal of any part would destroy the whole and the addition of any further part would be ludicrous. Human consciousness for Lonergan is structured by cognitional acts which unfold in an, in an inevitable and self-assembling order. He usually categorizes these acts according to levels, each of which pre precedes and sets the condition for the emergence of the next. Lonergan identifies four such levels, each with its corresponding acts, an empirical level that experiences, an intellectual which understands, a rational which judges, and a responsible which decides. One moves from one level to the next on account of the unrestricted dynamism of the human spirit. The details of Lonergan's analysis need not be pursued here. Suffice it to say that each level of the human person moves towards self-transcendence. She moves from the sensible to the intelligible, from the intelligible to the true, from the true to the good, and on to ever fuller truth and goodness. In sum, the human, the human is a dynamic structure of embodied consciousness, whose unfolding is a process of self-transcendence that finally has its goal in God. Now, for Lonergan, these levels of consciousness are best imagined as vertically organized from lowest to highest. The entire structure has an ascending dynamic or vertical finality, that is to say, a vertical dynamism and tendency, an upthrust from lower to higher levels of appetition and process. Within this ascending dynamic in the structure of consciousness, there is a relation of lower to higher levels that one could call sublation. This is the second quote on your handout. What sublates goes beyond what is sublated, introduces something new and distinct, puts everything on a new basis, yet so far from interfering with the sublated or destroying it, on the contrary, it needs it, includes it, and preserves all of its proper functions and properties and carries them forward to a fuller realization within a richer context. So, for example, and this is text three, the fourth level, deliberation, or evaluation, or decision, and action, those are all of its corresponding acts, sublates the prior levels of experience and understanding and judging. It goes beyond them, sets up new principles and types of operation, directs them to a new goal, but so far from dwarfing them, it preserves them and brings them to a fuller fruition. So sublation names the ascending relationship between levels. But notice, though, that there's also a descending relationship. The higher levels not only preserve the lower levels, but bring them to a fuller fruition at their own level. Call this descending dynamic saturation. Lower levels of consciousness are both maintained and also imbued with a quality of consciousness proper to higher levels. Briefly put, Consciousness for Lonergan is a multi-level, multi-act structure, vertically construed, animated by a bi-directional dynamism in which each level exists in a constant relation of sublation and saturation with its proximate levels. Now this brief glance at an aspect of Lonergan's theology provides a surprisingly useful vantage point from which to approach the theology of Thomas Gallus. Before pursuing that comparison, let me offer a brief overview of Gallus's theology. 
Gallus wrote multiple commentaries on two texts, namely the Song of Songs and the Corpus of Pseudo-Dionysius. More precisely and remarkably, he pursued an allegorical interpretation of the song using Dionysian theology. Because of this, his theology is profoundly symbolic. That is to say, he tends to think theologically with and through scriptural and also Dionysian symbols. Now, at present, the most important example of this symbolic consciousness is his appropriation of the angelic hierarchy, Dionysius's, in the service of his theological anthropology. That is to say, Gallus adopts Dionysius's angelic hierarchy as a model for understanding the basic nature and structure of the human soul along with its capacities and activities. This angelization of the human mind is as follows, and this is text four on the handout. The lowest triad of the hierarchy corresponds to the basic nature of the soul and its wholly natural capacities and acts. The angels, archangels, and principalities are the first triad. The middle triad of the hierarchy corresponds to the soul's natural capacities and activities as they're assisted by grace, the powers, the virtues, and the dominions. The highest triad of the hierarchy is the realm of grace above nature and involves ecstasy in the literal sense of the, of the term, that is to say, transcending the natural mind itself. These are the thrones, the cherubim, and the seraphim. In sum, as Gallus puts it, in the first triad, nature works alone. In the, in the highest triad, only grace. In the middle, grace and industry work together. Now, while Gallus's angelic anthropology will strike the modern reader as bizarre, there is a surprising utility to this scheme, if only that it provides a ready vocabulary and a repertoire of images for referring to and describing the various powers, acts, objects, and experiences of the soul. And so the modern reader of Gallus is invited to de-emphasize the angelic trappings and to try to appreciate what they represent. By far the most important aspect of Gallus's angelic anthropology is the fact that it is, a, it is hierarchical. For when Gallus conceives of the soul as a hierarchy, the fundamental features of Neoplatonic metaphysics, which are embodied in the Dionysian notion of hierarchy, come to characterize the nature of the soul as well. Stated generally, a Dionysian hierarchy is a dynamic, multidimensional state of, a, of unified being constituted by the simultaneity of metaphysical procession and return. That is to say, it's a set of relationships between aspects of or elements within a single unified reality in which movement is structured and coordinated into an harmonious equilibrium. It is a stable dynamism. It's also conceptualized and schematized spatially on a vertical axis such that its dy dynamism is a movement upward and downward, ascending and descending. And these ascending or descending valences, as I will call them, are simultaneous, not sequential. They're parallel, not alternating. Precisely speaking, ascent does not precede descent, nor vice versa. They are contemporaneous. And this is crucial. Often, mystical hierarchies are conceived of by modern readers and even medieval ones for that matter, as fixed static steps on a ladder, which is to be ascended stepwise and unidirectionally from lowest to highest until one reaches the top where the goal is reached and the movement ceases. 
Central to the interpretation of Gala's pursuit here, though, is the claim that such is a profoundly inadequate conception of hierarchy and yields a deficient understanding of his mystical theology as a whole. Rather, for Gallus, the soul is a true mens hierarchia. It is a dynamic, vertically stratified, multidimensional, and highly integrated structure of perpetual activity and movement. And this occurs through the dialectical rhythm of ascent and descent. Like the angels in Jacob's dream, the Galusian soul is always ascending and descending. And the soul relates to God thus hierarchically, that is always in and through its hierarchical structure. And each level of the soul relates to God in its own proper modality. So in light of the foregoing, it's possible to analyze Gallus's conception of three distinct moments or stages of the soul's relationship to God as hierarchically construed modes of God consciousness, or more precisely, as distinct modalities of knowing and loving God. It will also be possible to see the relationship between these modes as hierarchical instances of both sublation and saturation in the Lonerganian sense noted above. First of these corresponds to the dominions, the sixth angelic rank overall, and the topmost of the middle triad, which is the sphere of natural human activity assisted by grace. At this level, Gallus's primary concern is the acquisition of knowledge, or in his term, cognitio, of God. At this level, cognition of God is knowledge of the creator mediated by created effects. Invoking Romans 1, 19 and 20, Gallus calls this the mirror of creatures. On one hand, it's knowledge of God der derived from philosophical speculation based on natural reason. Indeed, Gallus explicitly praises Aristotle as its preeminent practitioner. On the other hand, the notion of ascending through visible things to invisible things is a venerable Victorine principle going back to Hugh. And so this intellectual cognitio dei is thus the proper object and possession, not only of philosophy, but also of theology as well. And this is quote five on your handout. Whatever science or wisdom, therefore, obtained in this intellectual mode, either arises from the cognition of pre-existing visible things, or is apprehended by the intellect, and it pertains to the first and common mode of cognizing God. And this pertains to all the liberal doctrines, not only of the pagan philosophers, but also of the Catholic doctors and the Holy Fathers, which either through intellectual study or teaching are able to be understood by mortals and can be assimilated into the faculty of the common understanding. So whether rationally discovered or divinely revealed, this form of intellectual cognition falls within the purview of the natural intellect. The soul arrives at this knowledge by actively extracting knowledge from the created world through which the nature of God can be deduced and inferred. In this way, the mind begins downward facing toward creation from which the mind can pull or extract knowledge and by which it can mount upward toward knowledge of God. Gallus calls it wine extracted from grapes. Now, Gallus is a metaphysical exemplarist, and so what the soul extracts from visible things are the divine ideas, which he calls, intriguingly, the theoriae. 
The Theoriae exist preeminently in, in simplicity in the eternal word, but they are also present in diversified multiplicity in all created things, causing each one to be the kind of thing that it is. So he refers to these as the exemplars of the eternal word, which are the eternal theoriae, and they are called the invisible things of God in the plural, even though in the highest word they are one. So what then in summary is this dominical God consciousness for Gallus? Well, in a word, I think we could call it scientific. It's active, it's initiating, investigative, resting knowledge of God from the created order. Its activity, sorry, it's, it, it is actively acquired by natural human effort and falls within the natural capacities of the soul and is mediated by concepts drawn from created things. The soul in some sense stands over and above its objects. Its proper act is extractive and abstractive. Its goal is to acquire and possess through conceptual grasp. Its formality, we might say, is the true insofar as it is true the verum ut verum in scholastic idiom. And its sense modality, if we can give it one, is vision and audition, connoting a kind of detached and objective analysis. Now, because this level is the highest of the soul's natural capacities, it encounters here a limit, a boundary which it cannot cross on its own. And yet the vertical finality, the ad deum impulse of its hierarchical nature does not allow it to rest here. Rather, it continues to reach, to strive, to yearn for more. And to characterize this posture, Gallus consistently deploys the language of stretching and extending. The still sober mind is stretched and is exercised toward the ray above, up to the highest limits of its nature. Alongside this language of reaching Godward, Gallus also frequently uses the language of suspension. High points of the affect and intellect are suspended in all their power for the reception of the divine visitations from above, inasmuch as this is possible for free choice, assisted by grace. Suspension here has a double meaning. On the one hand, it is nearly a synonym for stretching and reaching upward. It's the stretching of the mind into the super resplendent theoreii, up into the high point of the order of the dominions of the mind. At the same time, suspension has the familiar connotation of stoppage, of arrested movement, of cessation. At this stage, the soul's powers reach their natural limit, and thus their, their proper activity is now suspended. In the imagery of the Song of Songs, the soul at this level is like a bride <clears throat> uh, waiting, longing, reaching for an absent bridegroom. In fact, it is here that Gallus situates the bride at the opening of the Song of Songs, where she famously says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And Gallus says, since the bride is unwilling to rest, she suspends herself in the order of the dominions and begs to be drawn, for no one comes to the Father, no, no one comes whom the Father does not draw. Aptly, Gallus captures the soul bride's posture with the language of lingering. Lingering in the dominions, therefore, contemplating the beauty of the divine as much as she can in a mirror, she desires to be united to the first beauty above. The imagery here of lingering suggests an aptness for being taken up, or in the Lonarganian idiom, for sublation into a higher level of consciousness. 
And Gallus captures this aptness for sublation in maternal imagery. This is quote six on your handout. The bride calls the middle hierarchy her mother, since into her the theoriae are intellectually drawn and prepared, from, and from whose unitive contemplation the highest hierarchy is fed and sustained. For the lower hierarchy is said to be a kind of mother, since it gives birth to the fundamental movements of the superior orders. Her chamber is the most secret cavity of nature, human nature. Or with a horticultural metaphor, Gallus is even more explicit. This is quote seven. The foundation of all our wisdom and knowledge is the rational nature. And from the cognition of pre-existing natural things, it draws the origin of all teaching, even though celestial grace brings about the growth and consummation, just as plants and trees receive the power and origin of their, of their shoots, as well as their flower and fruit, all from the roots. Although without the benefit of heavenly heat and humors, they're not strong enough to come to consummation. Thus, all knowledge and the edifice of virtue are established upon the foundation of nature, yet they are not consummated without the benefit of divine light and heat. These birthing and germination metaphors suggest that dominical God consciousness is preparatory for, able to be upwardly assimilated by, and accumulated into a higher level. Now for Gallus, as we've said, the dominical rank represents the limits of the natural soul, the boundary of the natural capacities. And yet there's an, angel an entire triad of angelic ranks above the dominions. And so when the soul ascends now into this highest rank, it's in the realm of grace above nature, the arena, we might say, of supernature. Its entire mode of existence accordingly, including its God consciousness, changes. In a word, this new mode, this next mode, is ecstatic, taken literally, namely standing above or outside the strictly natural capacities and activities of the enstatic soul. Now, in this ecstatic modality, Gallus posits another kind of intellectual cognitio, distinct from and superior to the natural cognition of the dominions. He associates it with the cherubim at the eighth and penultimate rank of the entire hierarchy. This is the clear cognition of truth, which perfects the intellectus. To it, moreover, pertains both the theological virtue of faith and the gift of understanding, which perfects faith in the intellectual power. So what is this cherubic cognition and its characteristics? At the outset, an important point of continuity with natural cognition is noteworthy. Both kinds have a common object, namely the divine theoriae. In the distinction between enstatic and ecstatic cognition, the theoriae provide a common object and thus secure a continuity as of types of intellectual cognition. In fact, Gallus characterizes the intellect as theoric, it's a strange word in just this way, and this is quote eight on your handout. The business of the theoric mind or intellect is to intend and to speculate with fixed and quiet sharp point, either whatever the grace of heaven reveals that is ecstatically coming to it from above, or whatever reason has found and presented, namely what's instatically coming from below. 
The intellectus then appears hinge-like, able to turn n-statically to things below or ecstatically to things above. What then distinguishes this cherubic God consciousness from its prior dominical form? Well, the first point would be a difference in source. The entire highest triad involves a pneumatically activated union with Christ, construed nuptially as the union of the soul with her divine spouse. It is precisely from this nuptial relationship that the ecstatic intellectus receives the divine theoriae interiorly. The beloved's bundle of myrrh represents for Gallus the many theoriae, sweet-smelling above the mind, flowing from the simple unity of the word. Commenting on the opening line of the song that says, your breasts are better than wine, Gallus reads wine as dominical knowledge derived from the cognition of existing things. Rests, by contrast, stand for the most fertile and superabundant fullness of divine wisdom that flows from the abundance of the breast of the bridegroom. Or again, the soul bride is led into the cellars, that is, into the exemplars of the eternal word, high and deep by unitive contemplation. This mystical encounter with the word, moreover, for Gallus, is mediated by the Holy Spirit, who is the anointing who, that teaches all things. This nuptial framework generates a different intellectual modality. Rather than actively pulling knowledge from existing things, the intellectus here is attracted, drawn ever higher to her divine spouse. In the song commentary, Gallus says that the eighth order contains every kind of knowledge of the attracted intellect and of the attracted affect. In this sense, in that the soul is here led by the spirit and lives in the new mode of not I but Christ, the soul is primarily responsive. Now, due to its new source and its new mode, the soul's intellectual posture changes. It is now receptive or concave in Gallus's symbolism. Rather than grasping knowledge through active extraction or abstraction as wine from grapes, cherubic cognition receives it as milk from a breast. Quote nine on your handout, quoting the song, your breasts are more beautiful than wine, Gallus comments that they're more splendid than wine, namely than every cognition acquired by the agent or active intellect better because of the splendor which flows down into the cherubim. This evocative passage clearly distinguishes the wine of an inferior cognition derived or acquired by the activity of the agent intellect from created things below the mind from another superior kind received from above, flowing down into the cherubic order as milk from a breast of the word. Now, the most striking aspect of cherubic consciousness is what Gallus calls simplification. Drawn to the super simple spouse, the powers of the soul themselves begin to be simplified. The subtle movements of the mind extending towards supernal things are simplified in the contemplation of the super simple word. Well, what does this mean? Well, in the most basic sense, it means a contracting focus. Gallus says that it befits the mind rising to this cognition to unite all of its multiple capacities and be converted to the deifying simplicity. The result is a contracted intellect and an intellectual vision most greatly simplified. 
Interestingly, intellectual simplification also involves a transition from discursive reasoning to a more direct and immediate intellectual intuition or gazing into the higher theoriae. Reason, says Gallus, palpates, as it were, what it manually considers by the hand, by breaking down and by examining. By contrast, the cherubic intellect considers and sees by contemplating directly. It has a simple gaze. While this simplification pertains primarily to the intellectus itself, in cherubic consciousness, there is also a striking form of simplification of the intellect with the affect. They are both simplified in my contemplation, the bride says. And the milk of cherubic cognition, which is received from the bosom of the bridegroom, is both white and sweet, Gallus says. White because of the experience of splendors in the summit of understanding, sweet because of the boiling heat of the accompanying affection at the highest peak of understanding. Such imagery draw, suggests a drawing together. Those illuminations which the affectus and intellectus perceive simultaneously constitute the order of the cherubim, where the contemplative movements of intellect and affect unite and simplify in, an ascend, in ascending into the spectacles of divine simplicity. So in sum, what could we say about this cherubic God consciousness? Well, like dominical God consciousness, it is a type of intellectual knowledge or cognitio of God. And the intellectual character common to both is secured by their common object, the divine theoriae. They are also importantly distinct. The dominical is sober cognition, while the cherubic is ecstatic. Cherubic cognition is the highest and greatest of intellectual knowledge. At the same time, the scientific posture of dominical consciousness has now been taken over by an intersubjective relation between the soul and the word, now construed nuptially as a bride-bridegroom. In this new posture, the bride is receptive and responsive to the bridegroom, drawn or pulled rather than grasping and possessing, attracted rather than extracted. The cinderasis or high point of the soul is no longer convex, that is to say pointed downward, extracting wine from grapes, but rather now concave. It's sinus mentis, opened upwards to receive the milk flowing down from the breast of the word, that is to say, the theoriae flowing into the soul bride from her intimate union with Christ in the spirit. Drawn to her simple spouse, the cherubic intellectus undergoes a simplification, both in itself and in relationship to the affectus. The soul now encounters the true as the good, experiences an affective ideation, we might say. Such simplification corresponds with intensification, a modality more like intuition than discursive reason, capable of deeper intellectual penetration. For all that, though, the cherubic cognition remains intellectual, in some sense bound and limited by the fine finitude of intellectual concepts through which it encounters the divine theoriae. And so at the threshold of the highest rank, the seraphic, that is to say, the intellect reaches its limit. This is quote 10 on your handout. For the intellect and the affect walk together up to the final failure of the intellect, which has its high point in the order of the cherubim. 
The attracted intellect does not pass this, but has here the consummation of its knowledge and light, which Gallus explains in quote 11. Hence it is necessary from the, that high point, sorry, from that point for intellectual activities to be as it were stopped as they are not capable of progressing further. This is its death. Hence Exodus 33, 20 says, man shall not see me and live since God is wholly desirable, but not wholly intelligible. All of this sets the stage for the sublation into the seraphic union, Gallus's final level of God consciousness. For by contemplating the bridegroom on the day of his espousals, the bride in the order of the cherubim makes as it were a final preparation so that she is led to the inmost bed of the bridegroom. More precisely, we could say that cherubic intellection will now lead to seraphic affection. For first, we are to be illumined by those splendors which pertain to the perfection of the intelligence, but then we are to be formed, which pertains to the perfection of the principal affection. Gallus's description of the ninth and seraphic rank in the prologue to his third commentary on the song should be quoted in full, and this is quote 12. The ninth order contains the principal sign for God, the super intellectual stretching and insendings, burning brilliances and brilliant burnings. The understanding cannot be drawn to the excessive sublimities and sublime excesses of all these. Only the principal affection can be united to God. This order embraces God and is surrounded by the embraces of the bridegroom. <clears throat> it does not know through a mirror but gains the portion of Mary, which will not be taken away. From this order, the flood of the divine light flows into the lower orders one by one. From much that could be noted in this passage, the following are crucial. First of all, the inter note this intersubject nuptiality of the bride bridegroom paradigm. It remains here and is intensified. Second of all, the affectus is the capacity for direct and in some sense unmediated contact with God. Such contact self-evidently affects its recipient. And by definition, therefore, there is a clear receptive and passive dimension to this, which is more evident in the use of the passive participle, participle the affectus. <clears throat> to be affected is to be acted upon, to receive, to undergo, to suffer contact, to be touched. Essentially, the affectus is simply the capacity of the, of the soul to be affected thus by God. Third of all, the affectus is the summit of the ascending valence within the soul. It's the apex mentis, the goal and terminus of the soul's movement Godward. Fourth, the seraphic affectus is the point of union between the soul and God, where the soul is most capable of God. Fifth, all the activities of the intellectus are apparently barred from entry. The effectus alone operates here. This has long been stressed by both later medieval and modern readers. The seraphic affect, quote, suspends the activity of the senses of imagination, of reason, of intellect, both practical and theoretical, and excludes every understanding and every intelligible. It's here that love transcends and exceeds knowledge. Love enters in where intellectual knowledge now remains on the outside, because as Gallus often puts it, 
God is not wholly knowable, only wholly lovable. What precisely is this affective capacity and act? As it turns out, Gallus's answer complicates the apparently severe dichotomy between intellectus and affectus. Put simply, the affectus is the consummation of the vertical finality, the upwardly assimilated apex of all the lower aspects of the soul, including the properly intellectual. That is to say, though love transcends the soul's lower intellectual modalities, it transcends them in their proper and lower modes. But it also contains within it, in a higher modality, as every hierarchical level does in relation to its, to its inferior levels. <clears throat> What's excluded is proper and normal rational and intellectual activity. This is where Gallus's teaching on hierarchical simplification comes into play. At the affective summit, all the soul, soul's powers <clears throat> are cumulatively simplified into the single affective modality of seraphic love. Such and distinct at lower levels is also synthesized and integrated into an affective singularity. This hierarchical continuity allows Gallus, perhaps surprisingly but very consistently, to describe this affective encounter with God as a form of cognitio, as a cognitive act and experience. It is an affective cognitio dei whose objects are, once again, the divine theoriae. How? The answer is that Gallus adopts a teaching on the spiritual senses of the soul in order to explain love's superintellectual cognition. More precisely, he uses a particular interpretation of the fivefold sensorium to distinguish the lower intellectual kind of cognition from the higher affective kind. Intellectual cognition corresponds to sight and hearing while affective cognition corresponds to smell, taste, and touch. The affectus tastes, touches, and smells spiritually, while the intellectus sees and hears. Intellectual knowledge thus reflects the distance between knower and known that is apparently entailed in physical seeing and hearing. By contrast, the affectus cognizes God through spiritual smell and taste and touch. And that implies that affective cognition entails the immediate affecting quality that's found in those three physical senses. They are not exercised through a mirror as hearing and especially sight are, but rather directly. In Gauss's understanding, we cannot taste or touch without being <clears throat> affected by what we apprehend as Affective cognition entails a form of direct contact with actual participation in what is sensed. So insofar as we thus taste and touch and embrace and smell God, so to that extent do we cognize him by ineffably participating in his sweetness and suavity. Thus, co active cognition of God is a cognition of the same divine theoriae that the intellect cognizes in its own proper way, but in a different modality, through the spiritual senses. Gallus says, the best ointments are the super-intellectual theoriae, which soothe the minds united to them, and they restore and are rich in abundance for all with a kind of sweetness and beauty 
clarity and suavity, suavity and every kind of desirable outpouring as from the breast of the word. So what then is this seraphic cognition? But simply it is a cognition of divine self-disclosure in Christ through the spirit, wherein the soul is affected by what it experiences, analogous to certain kinds of sense perception in the sense that one undergoes it in a way that one experiences to taste and smell and touch. It is super intellectual in that it is beyond concepts, but it is not super cognitional. Cognition here understood as a mode of perception or awareness. It's not a difference in what is known, but how. As such, it requires a simplification of the soul, an integration of its diverse capacities, such that the lower modes of cognition are sublated to this highest mode. In this way, intellectual cognition is subsumed up into the seraphic modality, where I argue it reemerges as spiritual sensation. Gallus calls it wisdom a tasted knowledge born of love. Now in the prologue to his song commentary, Gallus observes the following. It is from this order, the seraphine, that the torrent of divine love pours down in stages to the lowest, lower orders. As a hierarchy, the soul has also a descending valence, a downward movement in which what is received and experienced We've just looked at, and indeed for the nature of theology itself. For Gallus, the condition for the possibility of success in the pursuit of a deeper and fuller understanding of the faith is superintellectual affective cognition, which fecundates the intellectual dimensions of the soul. Gallus multiplies poetic images for this, and this is uh, number 13 on your handout. A great abundance of ordered charity and clear understanding inflow from the order of the seraphim. Like a nourishing light rain, this influx refills and refreshes every capacity of the mind that has been extended to receive it. Seraphic union becomes a fountain of water flowing down from above, and it pours affectual and intellectual abundance into the lower orders. The affectual inflowing is like a fountain of intellectual things by which there is an inflowing from the higher watering. Brought to union, the affectus engenders incomparably brighter lights in the intellect. So what exactly is this intellectual benefit from affective cognition? I would argue it is a greater and deeper understanding of the faith. This is 14 on your handout. Often by the experience of burning charity, the, the mind is illuminated and strengthened in no small way as to how to apprehend the articles of the Trinity already held by faith, but how they're understood to be thus and ought not nor cannot be otherwise, even though it does not fully understand them. Alice is not advocating a sort of quasi-gnostic form of secret revelation or some new knowledge that departs 
from or adds to scripture and tradition. Rather, he affirms two things here, a more personal relationship to the truths of revelation and also the possibility of deeper insight into their intelligibility. It is this dimension that is fecundated by the soul's super intellectual cognition. For Gallus, affectivity is intellectually fruitful, produces an abundance of speculative insight. Here then, as a function of the hierarchical nature of the soul, a descending movement from the highest to the lowest levels seems aptly characterized in Lonerganian terms as a kind of saturation. So Gallus's three modes of cognition, we might call them scientific, contemplative, and sapiential, are helpfully construed, I would argue, as three intimately interrelated forms of God consciousness, three distinct modes by which the soul relates to God. As with Lonergan, so with Gallus, it is appropriate to speak of a polymorphism of human God consciousness. Their hierarchical interrelationship, properly understood, requires that each mode be valued and cultivated individually in its own domain and proper modality, having its own integrity as a human mode of consciousness. These modes participate in an ascending vertical finality with its concomitant process of simplification by which the lower modalities are sublated into the higher, enabling greater degrees and higher intensities of divine human intimacy. At the same time, the higher levels flow down into the lower, saturating them, fecundating them into, in their own modalities. Such is the structure of human God consciousness for Thomas Gallus. So is Gallus's mystical theology rightly characterized as anti-intellectual? No. Rather, Gallus is best interpreted as affirming a multidimensional or multimodal structure of human God consciousness where each modality has its own value, integrity, and function in the soul's total relationship to God. For Gallus, these are diverse modes of cognition, and that term has a much broader and richer meaning than the English word cognition. Lastly, an important implication of Gallus's hierarchical anthropology is that there is nothing comparable in it to the modern transcendental subject or ego whose a priori and pre-thematic God consciousness or mystical experience is absolutely prior to all categorical thematization and conceptual expression. Rather, transcendental subjectivity, if we could put it that way, for Gallus is emergent within the hierarchical dynamism of the soul, which has no absolute starting point. Rather, the soul is perpetually in motion, ascending and descending simultaneously. Accordingly, mystical experience is located not as a foundational experience that is only subsequently given and always an adequate expression in language, doctrine, and concepts and systems. Rather, mystical experience is always already doctrinally informed and theologically shaped, even as it fecundates deeper doctrinal and theological insights. More precisely, and in Gallus's own terms and within his hierarchical framework, Affective cognition both succeeds and precedes intellectual cognition. There is no mystical empiricism here. Gallus does not derive doctrine from experience, though he does derive insight into doctrine's intelligibility from mystical experience. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Professor Wojtyla-Kuman, for a wonderful and rich uh, tour of the complex and too little known work of Thomas Gallus. I have about five of my own questions written down, but I would prefer to give priority to some of our participants. One thing I forgot to mention at the very beginning is you're encouraged so as to make the most fruitful use of our time to uh, put a fairly brief questions or comments into the chat box, maybe starting toward the end of someone's presentation as you've begun to absorb to absorb the, 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 the heart of uh, his or her argument and uh, reading of the texts, right? Um, so we already have some comments right now. I will just pick out a couple of them. The advantage also of short comments is that if, if Boyd or whoever else is presenting prefers to just go through it himself, uh, it's um, much easier to do so in this 15 minute period. Um, so Professor Taylor Kuhlman, I would give the first question to is either Mr. or Ms. Cohen um, on this possible Byzantine influences on Gallus other than Dionysus. Can we say anything about this? Um, I, I don't know of any other than Dionysius. Um, Gallus does not, to my memory, um, uh, cite explicitly uh, other authors. Uh, he's, he's just so obsessed with Dionysius that that seems to be the primary focus. Um, so just my short answer is uh, none that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting question. Right. I think that would be consistent with what we see in some of his contemporaries in scholastic theology. We're very much have to rely on John Damascene and Dionysus here, but obviously Damascene cannot be the same kind of rich source with this material as, right. as someone like, like Dionysus. Um, so somebody wants the handout that is more, perhaps um, I will go to, I believe it was, is it uh, Mr. or Father uh, Lukasz Saviki? has a fascinating question. You could also, if you prefer unmute and ask it orally yourself, unless you prefer for me to read it on your behalf, you're most welcome to unmute and have an exchange with Dr. Boyd Taylor Kuhlman. Um, Lukash, I'll give you a few seconds to unmute, but if you'd prefer not to, that's fine. It's your choice. Hello. Hello. Greetings to everybody. My question was very simple. Given the subject of love and you know, senses, taste, my thought went to Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived a couple of decades before Gallus. So is there any connection or there are some influences um, yeah. which could be noticed between it's, it's, Bernard of Clairvaux and Gallus? <laughs> Thanks. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, Certainly in, in, in broad ways, one feels a kind of kinship between what uh, Gallus's interest in affectivity and, and, and the affectus um, and the priority of love um, between that on the one hand and, and you know, the Cistercian world and, the, and Cistercian sensibilities on the other. Uh, what's interesting though is uh, Gallus does not, to my again, to my memory or knowledge, explicitly allude to any of those Cistercian authors by name. Um, so it's hard to know if there's a direct influence. The other thing that complicates this thing is that um, Gallus's 
mindset and his idiom and everything is just so fundamentally, fundamentally Dionysian, where the Cistercians are, are not really operating in a Dionysian modality or idiom, that the, I think that could kind of obscure the, the, uh, the, the, the possible Cistercian influence because everything, Gallus is filtering everything through the Dionysian grid or screen, so to speak. So uh, I, I, you're exactly right in my mind to recognize the similarities, kind of the family resemblance, but again, in terms of explicit influence, I'm not aware of any. So uh, Boyd, I'd like to go to uh, Joey, who is a doctoral student in theology in Cambridge. And I, I suspect Joey, whom I know from his studies days in California, will be happy to jump in and ask you directly. Okay. He's an avid reader of medieval Dionysianisms. <laughs> oh. Thank you, Father. And uh, thank you, uh, Professor, for your wonderful paper. So my question is, um, maybe just rhetorically, to what extent does uh, bringing Lonergan immediately into the conversation kind of import a Thomistic lens kind of by the back door? Now, um, uh, I don't think any um, reader or commentator of Dionysius would disagree that uh, with God as this overflowing source of, of love and goodness that these don't affect the lower levels such that I, I think saturation is kind of um, an, an apt way of looking at the downward mediation. But in, in terms of, of the mystical ascent, um, to what extent maybe might having brought Lonergan into the conversation kind of um, already make our interpretation of Gallus closer to the type of upward integration of intellect that is a lot more explicit in Thomas Aquinas. Now, that's an interesting question. Um, well, maybe, I mean, on one hand, I'm, in, I'm inclined to ask you say, to say more about what is precisely about a, a Aquinas that you're thinking here is sort of, uh, you know, is, is coming into play that's similar, more similar to Gallus than, than we might imagine. But the, my first thought is, uh, I mean, as Father Blankenhorn knows very well, he's written about it very eloquently, uh, both Albert and Thomas themselves um, strongly disagree with Gallus and Gallus's interpretation of Dionysius precisely on this issue of the affectus and how it, how it relates or doesn't relate or how it's a part of the, the Dionysian theological world at all. So, um, and to the extent that Lonergan is more kind of in a transcendental Thomist sort of modality, it's not clear to me that, um, you know, that uh, what he's doing, and especially with, I mean, I'm, and, and really all I'm doing with the, the Lonergan is just using his and him as a kind of an analogy. As a, it's just a way to sort of say, hey, look, what Gauss is doing isn't quite as bizarre and strange as we might imagine it at first glance. Here's a modern theologian who's thinking in ways that are remarkably analogous to what Gauss is doing. At the same time, what, what Lonergan's up to is very different if, if, if when you get into the details from what, what Gallus is up to. So I guess my, my short answer is I don't think that, uh, A, I'm not really giving a Lonerganian reading to Gallus as much as just providing a kind of point of departure um, and using some, some language. I don't think it's a, it's a strong Lonerganian reading of Gallus. And therefore, I don't think I'm giving it an over, kind of a Thomistic overlay. But I'm hope, happy to hear more about how that might be true. 
I'd like to close with just my own question and then we'll have about a 20 to 25 minute break. So um, Boyd, as you were speaking, uh, you've helped uh, theologians a great deal to recover um, the doctrine that is found in the full corpus of um, Gallus, especially with your great attentiveness to his work on the Song of Songs. And as we know, and as many people in the virtual uh, aula know, um, one of Gallus's works on Dionysus, namely what we in English tend to call the paraphrase, had uh, a potentially very vast influence because of its inclusion in this famous Parisian corpus of Dionysus, which was likely read by many great theologians working in the middle of the 13th century, of which a copy was also at uh, Saint-Jacques at the Dominican Priory. Um, as far as you know, how much of the bridal mysticism that comes out more clearly in his work on the Song of Songs had a, a heritage, a tradition afterward. Obviously, Gallus had an influence. Could, can we say that there's one side of Gallus that was better known later in later decades and centuries than another? Because um, how much of the Gallus you've given us would have been likely accessible to some of these uh, persons whom we, we might describe as more or less disciples or people deeply marked by his thinking in the Middle Ages? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and, and it's a really important one in terms of the, the Nachleben of, of Gallus, because I think you, you're exactly right in the way you've already sort of indicated in the question. As far as I can see, the Gallus that's known uh, after his own time, uh, or even during, or during his own time, during his own lifetime, is not the Gallus of the Song of Song commentaries. Um, I think the only Gallus that's really known outside of Vercelli, as far as I can see, which is where, of course, he spent most of his life, uh, after he left Paris in 1219, is the paraphrase, you know, the, the, the parts of it that circulated in this sort of annotated Areopagite in Morm's phrase, you know, in the, in the university context and other places. And it's exactly, exactly right. The, the, the theology that shows up in that paraphrase, I think, is a very truncated or very so, so severely condensed version of Gauss's theology that it was, that was, it was, it was just misunderstood. Uh, and, and without the advantage or the benefit of the larger corpus, and especially the commentaries on the Song of Songs, I think the, the later Middle Ages just got a, a truncated version of Gallus, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, so the 21st century is seeing the, the birth of a full-blown Gall Gallusian <laughs> mystical tradition. We'll hope so. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, all right.